talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This episode was created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction recorded by Andy Cohen. In this episode, Claudio Neri presents his article on vitality, vitalism, and shame. Through a rich narrative ranging from the memory of his encounter with Bion, to ethno-psychological studies on expressions of anger or joy, to the myth of Anteo that shows the importance of contact with a safe and revitalizing object, Claudio Neri raises two questions. How can we distinguish natural vitality from exasperated vitalism? And what role does shame play in this presenting itself to others without the armor of one's own defenses? If enthusiasm is contagious, it is possible, however, to observe how sometimes some individuals may not tolerate being close to a vital subject. The contagion effect which emanates from the enthusiastic person, in fact, puts them at risk of losing their balance. People who are depressed or very controlling, for example, may feel that the enthusiasm activates an aspect of themselves that they must strictly keep at bay. What should the psychoanalyst finally do when the shame and the parade of embarrassment and fear are so intense as to prevent one of his patients from approaching vitalizing experiences? Claudio Neri is training and supervising analyst at the Italian Psychoanalytic Society and a founding member of the International Field Theory Association. He is also a member of the editorial board of the European Journal of Psychotherapy and Counseling, Revue de Psychotherapie Psychoanalytique de Groupe, Clinica y Analysis Grupal, and of the Revista de Psychoanalysis de las Configuraciones Vinculares. He has published articles and books primarily on the technique and theory of treatment, and his work has been translated into six languages. This episode is read by Brooke Barbieri. Vital Aspects of Shame Bion was in outstanding shape. Even in his 80s, he used to go for a long morning swim whenever he had the chance. His cycle of conferences, the Italian seminars, lasted several days in a row, during which he would speak off the cuff for hours and never sit down. He delivered his arguments with resolve. Flattery and pointless redundancy nettled him. Having met him in person, I came to think of him as an extraordinary, vital man, and assumed that it was due mostly to his genetics and nature. Nonetheless, he would tirelessly nurture and foster this innate vitality of his. He had a method of his own, which involved a combination of two different, if not sometimes conflicting, mindsets. The first one was based on discipline and on relentless commitment to the importance of pursuing and promoting the absolute truth. His second mindset was built on a genuine appetite for exploration, for finding new horizons of the mind and of the heart, on having faith in change, and on believing in the right to a certain measure of transgression. I was immediately captivated by Bion's method, which seemed to work perfectly for him and yet, it would not necessarily work for me. 
there are many different ways of being and staying vital. And there are just as many ways to be neurotic. Sometimes vitality and neurosis go hand in hand. In most cases, however, they're not a well-matched pair. Neurosis, and especially falsehood, siphon off too much energy for vitality to thrive. Lies need constant tweaking to remain plausible. Truth, on the other hand, while harder to practice, also has the great advantage of standing firm on its own. The drive and energy being put in his speeches were a clear mark of his own vitality. And yet, hardly anything on vitality can be found in his writings. It is true, though, that the subject came to be relevant for psychoanalysis only several years after Bion's death, when self-psychology and relational psychoanalysis emerged. I can recollect only one pertinent excerpt from his books, namely in Experiences in Groups and Other Papers. Here, Bion describes the state of conflict of the individual caught between the two great collective mindsets, the work group, rational group, and the basic assumption group, primitive group. When an individual conforms excessively to the work group mindset, they feel haunted by a sense of bareness and a lack of vitality. This is when the individual starts drifting towards the basic assumption group. The new situation, however, makes the individual feel they are in danger of losing their ability to think for themselves and to experience personal feelings. This excerpt from Experiences in Groups contains a notable suggestion. When an individual plunges into the most primitive strata of the group mental life, basic assumption group, their sense of vitality can grow stronger. However, the quest for vitality as a way out of the work group mindset and escape from responsibility, from the strain of cooperating with other people, from intellectual exertion, leads to the loss of vitality's finest qualities. When it originates from the basic assumption group, vitality is necessarily blind. Every individual in every community must face and handle the conflict between dry reasoning and blind vitality. Different communities and cultures have worked out different ways to find a happy medium between the two polarities. We all know from first-hand experience that vitality is closely related to one's background culture. Vitality takes different forms in Argentina, Italy or Switzerland. The Yatmu people of New Guinea live in rudimental houses. They use very few tools. They're not especially skilled in handwork or trading, and yet they have developed a working system of social interaction. In Margaret Mead's work, the Yatmu people are a gay, irresponsible, vigorous people, always either laughing or screaming with rage. The two types of behavior are more or less alternative and seem to give them about equal satisfaction. When anyone loses his or her temper, the bystanders stand about, 
grinning from ear to ear, feeling reassured that this is a world in which people can lose their tempers hard. They enjoy anger more than any people I've ever seen. I would like to wrap up my short introduction to vitality with a couple of remarks. The first one focuses on how vital individuals relate to their reservoir of energy and liveliness. A reservoir which is theirs and yet not quite theirs. The second one explores the individual's relationship with effectively relevant people surrounding them. The reservoir of energy and liveliness I just mentioned can be thought of as a second wind people can resort to when they have to live through adversities or when recovering from a shock or a crisis. The myth of Anteus is a fitting metaphor for what I mean. Anteus the giant, the son of Poseidon and Gaia, Mother Earth, was virtually unbeatable. Whenever he touched the ground and thus made physical contact with his mother, his energy was fully restored. In the previous pages, I argued that vitality depends on genetics and nature. I also stated that we should nurture vitality with passion, commitment and discipline. Finally, I said that every individual in every culture must find their own way to bring out their vitality, striving to find a happy medium between dry reason and blind vitality. I would now like to add that vitality also depends on our relationship with an object. For example, Mother Earth, a person, an ideal, a pursuit that gives us joy and comfort, an object which holds the power to reinvigorate us, helping us overcoming our woes and failures. To round off my definition of vitality, I would now add one more remark on the matter of feeling and showing enthusiasm. A person who is able to experience true enthusiasm by watching an athlete compete, by gazing at a work of art, or simply by meeting up with a friend, not only feels reinvigorated, like Antheus the giant, but also becomes endowed with a special light. They shine with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, when genuinely felt and shown, can be shared and may even lead to some sort of good contagion. On the other hand, it may also stir up feeling of envy and enmity in one's neighbors. A person who experiences enthusiasm and thus has lowered part of their everyday social defense mechanism is prone to be attacked and ridiculed diminished or disheartened. It is not just envy, however, that can trigger such attacks. As I said, enthusiasm is contagious, and an enthusiastic individual might be rejected by their neighbors. An enthusiastic person unleashes a sort of contagion effect which can be perceived as a threat to another's way of being and stability. For instance, Subjects who are depressed or have the urge to always be in control may perceive another's enthusiasm as a threat, since it may awaken a part of themselves that they feel they must repress.
A person who wishes to preserve their enthusiasm, then, must cope not only with the ensuing inner turmoil, but also with potential attacks from other people. What makes vitality different from pseudo-vitality, for example neurotic hyperactivity, hypomania, is that the former is accompanied by a supplemental reservoir of energy and the ability to become enthusiastic. A common telltale sign of pseudo-vitality is anxiety, which often ends up being vented at other people. Individuals who come across as very vital may, upon closer inspection, turn out to be moved not by joy, but by unrelenting anxiety. During therapy sessions, it is very common to meet subjects suffering from this particular form of self-imposed pseudo-vitality. It is even more common to be asked for help by patients lamenting a miserable life burdened by a lack of vitality and consistently low self-esteem. Lack of vitality has been linked to several dynamic and psychopathological situations such as childhood depression, incomplete mourning, and, consequently, enduring melancholia, narcissistic personality disorders, alienating identification, and false self-defense mechanism. These studies have produced valuable information and tools to handle pseudo-vitality and lack of vitality in all their forms. I will now focus on one aspect in particular, those cases in which low vitality is due to the patient's inability to draw on their reservoirs of vitality. This inability often generates a sense of shame mingled with fear and strong discomfort. Shame, fear, and discomfort may become so overwhelming that they inhibit one from reaching for some of their most important sources of vitality, such as sexuality, the expression and the enjoyment of feelings, and a healthy relationship with one's body and with other people. I will not refer to a clinical report, but to an excerpt from a novel by Hilary Mantle. In the book, King Henry VIII became infatuated with Jane Seymour, a young noblewoman. Jane is not particularly beautiful or bright. In fact, she can barely read and write. Nonetheless, she has a meek and mild disposition that would eventually earn her the name of Jane the Pacific. The king starts courting her passionately and is even willing to present her with a formal marriage proposal. Unexpectedly, though, Jane is everything but flattered by the king's courtship and is not eager to marry him. Quite to the contrary, the prospect terrifies her. It is the end of March. Mr. Seymour, stricken with panic, seeks an interview with Mr. Secretary. It is set up by Sir Nicholas Carew, though Sir Nicholas himself is absent, not yet ready to commit himself to talks. Her widowed sister is with her. Bess gives him a searching glance, then drops her bright eyes. Here's my difficulty, Jane says. She looks at him wildly. He thinks, maybe that's all she means to say. Here is my difficulty. 
She says, you can't, His Grace, His Majesty. You can't for one moment forget who he is, even though he demands you to. The more he says, Jane, I'm your humble suitor, the less humble you know he is. And every moment you are thinking, what if he stops talking and I have to say something? I feel as if I'm standing on a pincushion with the pins pointing up. I keep thinking, I'll get used to it, next time I'll be better. But when he comes in, Jane, Jane, I'm like a scalded cat. Though, have you ever seen a scalded cat? Master Secretary, I have not. But I think, if after this short time, I'm so frightened of him. He wants people to be frightened. With the words, arrives the truth of them. But Jane is too intent on her own struggles to hear what he has said. If I'm frightened of him now, what will it be like to see him every day? She breaks off. Oh, I suppose you know. You do see him, Master Secretary, most days. Still, not the same, I suppose. The king disposes of the life and the death of all his subjects, and Jane has no choice but to withdraw and stall. Nonetheless, it is Jane who finds herself in the best position to negotiate between two troubled people. Jane can empathize with the king while she feels flayed. The king never divests himself of his royalty. He never takes off his armor, not even when he goes to sleep. This way, no one can ever forget, not even momentarily, that he is the king. Although there are polar opposites, these two mechanisms of defense are both responses to the very same fear. To let other people in, to allow them to get closer to our human nakedness, carries the risk, if not the certainty, to be met with ridicule, to be torn apart, and to be ultimately annihilated. It is the black, bitter heart of shame. Shame, however, has a dual nature. It is expression of the inner turmoil we experience almost every time we reach for our sources of vitality or experience vitality itself. Jane Seymour and the King would benefit from the latter experience, in need as they are of communion and closeness, which are factors of vitality. In order to do so, however, they should first work individually and if possible together, to weave a psychic skin. A psychic skin protects and connects at the same time. Didier Anzieux talks about the skin ego. In his The Ego and the Id, Freud says that the ego is first and foremost a bodily ego, a person's own body and above all, its surface, is a place from which both external and internal perceptions may spring. When a patient is constantly overwhelmed by such a powerful feeling of shame, mingled with discomfort and fear, that keeps them from experiencing vitality, what should an analyst do? The first thing to do, I think, is to be calm and patient while trying to create a safe environment. This is crucial 
because when patients are in great distress, they find it hard to stand an analyst's overflowing vitality and vigorous healing exertion. They cannot help but feel shamefully weak and stripped of their skin. If proper patient and cautiousness are exerted, in due time the patient will eventually introduce their feelings of shame into the sessions and into the relationship with their clinician. It may appear to come out of the blue, when in fact it will be the outcome of long hard work. The patient will be able to literally bring their feelings of shame to the therapy session rather than merely talk about it. The importance of this moment is best captured by Bion's words, psychoanalysis, unlike maths and history, requires its object to be present to proceed. The analyst must be able to discern the first genuine manifestations of shame from all the previous ritual self-descriptions of the patient as being inadequate and uncomfortable. These descriptions, while markers of low self-esteem, were also a means of self-criticism and an attempt to keep others away. This implies that the patient has prevented from establishing a closer relationship with themselves and with their analyst. The appearance of this genuine feeling of shame is quite different from all the previous fear-imbued, anguishing experiences. It is a lively feeling, full of sensational and bodily memories. To be able to reach for it and to bring it to the therapy session is a great achievement for the patient. The analyst should simply share the patient's experience and refrain from saying or doing anything that might cause distress to the patient. Only afterwards, when the right time comes, should the analysts give their feedback, hinting positively at the appearance of the patient's feeling of shame as a step forward in the therapy. Finally, the analyst and the patient can complete the process by detecting the trauma that had held the patient from showing themselves as a vital human being with feeling and urges, including fear and shame. They will then try to work on the patient's condition of being caught between a need for vitality-inducing experiences and the compulsion to lock them out and retreat. As I mentioned at the beginning of my paper, Bion's writing contained hardly any reference to subsisting or potential vitality in a patient-analyst relationship. Nevertheless, we're able to single out a leading thread so that Wilford Bion and his thought could accompany us on this journey.